brought into Laptop Gurus from 23, the podcast which likes to go beyond the headlines and really delve into the issue with the help of data and our pioneering content toolbox. My name is Tom Bedell and this week I'm joined by Konstantin Etna, Editor-in-Chief of the Spielverlagerung website dedicated to the tactical analysis of German football. He's also a freelance football writer in his own right and has written for the BBC amongst plenty of other publications. Constantine, thanks for joining us today. Just begin by firstly telling us, what's your day-to-day role in football? What do you do? Yeah, so I'm freelance journalist, uh, one of many, I, f- I believe. Um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work for um, English-speaking media, for BBC Times and the likes, um, and also for a lot of German outlets. Um, that's where I you know, got my first break, basically, in German media um, when, I, when I was still studying at the university. Um, doing stuff for TV, radio, and and uh, newspapers, and and on top of that, um, I'm also running Spielverlagerung.com, which is a tactics blog, one of the established t- tactics blogs. Um, and yeah, that's more or less what I do. And I mean, as as a lot of freelancers, there's not like a, a clear day to day procedure I'm following. It's more like all right, uh, a lot of projects, a lot of side projects, a lot of things um, going on simultaneously. And yeah. Sounds good. Uh, what's your relationship with data and football analytics like? How did you become interested in that side of of the game? Yeah, I, I first started as uh, as a tactics writer, more or less. Uh, I mean, I did also other stuff, uh, more like uh, softer um, stuff, like profile pieces about players and and the likes. But um, I started writing about tactics a lot um, in 2012, 2013, 2014, as uh, when I was at university, first first year university student. And at that time, um, tactics writing wasn't really established. Um, so there was, no. I mean, it was about to be established, but it wasn't. Um, and statist- statistical analysis, at least for the, let's say, wider audience, wasn't established as well. So I started really, you know, writing about tactics. And then at, at some point, um, statistical analysis become more prominent. And I also wanted to look into it because sometimes tactics writing can be um not as evidence-based as you would like it you know there's more like the you observe stuff um but you have to be very cautious about making assessments just based on you know a couple of things that have happened so in, in order to basically basically put your uh, tactical analysis on a broader fundamental basis um, I also got into just looking at numbers and and the kind of at, at especially advanced stats that uh, were available mm-hmm back then um and of course and then i followed everything that was going on you know like um with with the different companies and different people in in this uh, analytics football bubble uh, you know on twitter on on podcasts uh, i mean uh, i think all the listeners know the kind of prominent names that are um that have been around for a couple of years now and yeah and talked to them got, you know got uh, went to conferences and stuff like that and mm. uh, just Got from there, you know, and I'm I'm not I'm not a you know um, a, a trained mathematician or something. I wasn't really bad at math at school. I'm not a <laughs> trained mathematician or statistician, but um, of course through experience, just through um, you know dealing with stats, I I think I have gained uh, somewhat of a of a decent knowledge about uh, stats and statistics in football. Well, that's why you're here, and we're going to put that decent knowledge, I'm sure it's far better than decent, to use today. Um, As we have uh, a native German speaker and a a German football expert on the line, it makes sense to focus today's show 
on matters in the Bundesliga. And we're going to start by looking at the Champions League through a German lens, I suppose. All four Bundesliga participants, Bayern, Dortmund, RB Leipzig and Mönchengladbach, all progressed to the knockout stage. Uh, it was touch and go, I think it's fair to say, for Mönchengladbach. But they are there, and that's something that no one, uh, none of the other major leagues can say, Premier League, Serie A, La Liga. Bayern, of course, won last year's tournament, beating PSG in the final in Lisbon and ending a spell of Spanish dominance to win their sixth European Cup and their first since 2013. So the first and inevitable question is that having watched the group stages, Constantin, what uh, what did you make of the Bundesliga's representatives um, in the in the in the opening round of the tournament? I mean, as a like let's say as a fan of uh, of German football, you have to be satisfied with the the results. Um, I mean, you got Bayern and, and Dortmund winning the groups, which also puts them in a in a good position for the for the round of sixteen. Um, also, they're still like Sevilla and Barcelona, you know, you can still <laughs> play against them, so who knows. Um, but uh, it puts you in a good position. I think RB Leipzig, they are in the in, in an interesting spot, I believe. And uh, I don't really know um, where you place them right now in terms of like a power ranking in Europe. Mm. I, I recently interviewed um, Emil Forsberg, the um, Leipzig attacking midfielder. Mm. And, and he, he said to, or he told me like, yeah, we want to beat Manchester United in the last match, of course. Um, redeem ourselves for the for the five nil, um, and also we want to show Europe that we can can hang with the best. And what's interesting that he said it like that. I, I I'm translating. I we did an interview in German, but I, he basically said said it that way. It was interesting because Leipzig they went to the semifinals in the previous year, mm. um, so I don't know if they have really have to prove themselves. I think a lot of people now know. And that they are quality and they, um, you know, that they belong to the best, I don't know, eight or 10 teams in Europe, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, but their kind of mentality is still like we have to prove ourselves. So it's interesting. And I think they, they did. Um, sure, the five, the five nil at Old Trafford was like an embarrassment. And I think there was a kind of uh, also a turning point in their season, I believe, uh, not only for the Champions League, but also for the Bundesliga, because they, they changed a couple of things then. And mentioned Gladbach um, beforehand, before the season, I was uh, on, a, on an expert panel for um, for BBC, and and they asked me about the, the German teams, and I was uh, and I told them that like Gladbach should view this group stage as more of a learning experience, you know, <laughs> for maybe the next few years, because I think they are still in the in the building up phase, still there where, where Leipzig see themselves, basically, you know, establishing themselves in in, in Europe among the top uh, clubs. Actually, I thought that Internationale would be just, you know, much better. Um, and that's why I, I didn't believe that Gladbach would get, go through. Obviously, and I like, things turned out completely differently with Schachtia being in there, beating Real Madrid twice. So, you know, things were completely different than I expected, um, especially for Internationale. Uh, but uh, that's why I didn't believe they would go through. For them, it's like uh, it's, it's probably more or less the biggest success in their in past 30 years or so. Because as some people might know, um, knowing German football history, they were a big deal in the 70s. Mm. But since then, they slowly, gradually declined over decades. And now just recently have come back to um, this, you know, to, to the top six or seven in the Bundesliga and now to the top 16 in Europe. So that's kind of a big success for them. Um, still a fairly young team and a team full of um, players that 
that are still developing. So um, yeah, for them, it's the biggest success. I think for, for Dortmund and Bayern, it's different. You know, it's like, is winning the group is for is, is expected from them yeah. at this point. No, absolutely. Well, let, let's start with Bayern. They obviously dominated Group A and, and by no means a mean an easy kind of feat. They had Atletico Madrid in there, of course, and RB Salzburg of, of course, teams Liverpool most notably, I think, in, in the past some problems. Should they be considered favourites again in, in 2020, 2021, do you think? Yeah, objectively, yes. Um, I, I usually like to, you know, to bet on, on some of the, like, let's say, dark horses or or, or like like the Real Madrid maybe or something, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's kind of boring to say Bayern are the favourites, but yes, objectively, they are the favourites right now. I think especially with you, you, we have to see like uh, how Liverpool recovers from the from the injury crisis they they have right now, meaning that like how will Liverpool look in the quarterfinals and semifinals if they go through? So they, I think Liverpool still have the quality to also go to the finals and you know give Bayern a run for their money. Um, but I think Bayern they should be considered favorites. Also considering that uh, Joshua Kimmich is currently injured and out but he is expected to be back in January so his injury will not uh be a favor uh, be, be a factor in the in, in the knockout rounds mm. so um I, I believe yes especially with Kimmich being fit again and if the other key players are fit um then buy on all the favorites and um yeah it's just the way it goes, and I think um, they they might be able to defend the title, which is you know where Madrid did it, but it's still kind of a a hard thing to do in the Champions League, as we have witnessed for for over two decades uh, after the inauguration of the Champions League. Well, yeah, absolutely right. Um, Hansi Flick has had a pretty impressive, pretty immediate impact uh, on Bayern after succeeding Niko Kovac what has he changed has he changed much and and how have they evolved tactically and I think it's 54 games in charge now yeah um I think with Kovac the the main issue was that there he didn't really have any kind of philosophy there was not nothing left really Bayern was uh, unidentifiable uh, in a way um how they played so what they did was, or what, what Flick did was, um, he re-established a high, intense, high press Bayern had before Kovac and before Angelotti, actually. So, because it wasn't only about Kovac, it was about the, the steady decline over a couple of years under Angelotti and mm-hmm. then under Kovac. So all in all, maybe four years of decline. Uh, for Bayern, yeah. uh, Flick re-established the high press, knowing that he has Lewandowski, Thomas Müller, like competent pressing players. Um, that was the first thing, and the second thing was that he um, rebuilt their their build-up play. Um, he used Thiago very well, which uh, previous coaches didn't do. Um, he used Kimmich in midfield more often um, and in a better way. So he really made use of. The players he had as in center midfield and also up front, um, you know, in all phases of the game. And I think, I think it, it, it that's like not an I think not a satisfiable answer. Um, but really, Bayern's issues were very fundamental, and uh, it wasn't about you know tiny adjustments you had to do. They were really fundamental because the match that more or less led to uh, Kovac's um, firing was, uh, what, what was it? It was a 5-1 defeat, 5-2 defeat against Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah. Um, so Bayern losing and conceding five goals, you see that, you know, 
every 10 years in German football or something like <laughs> So um, unless it's like, uh, you know, a an, an, an match or on the last match day or something, and they've already won the championship or, or something like that. But in a competitive match, uh, Bayern conceding five goals in the Bundesliga against Eintracht Frankfurt, decent team, but, you know, not the title contender or anything. So there was a breaking point. And what you could see is like there was no no pressing intensity Um the the lineup, the formation was really stretched across the field. There was no narrowness, no there was no density. They didn't uh, shut down spaces. So yeah, overall there were fundamental issues. And Hansi Flick, he was the assistant coach for a few months there, um, coming in, and I think he closely observed what was going wrong. And then he went in and uh, tried to rebuild Bayern as quickly as possible. I think one of the main factors, and it's hard to assess looking from the outside in, one of the main factors also that he's a very good communicator. And he can really, he's a teacher, a technical teacher, so he can also really get his point across and, and teach his players what they have to do. Still knowing that like he deals with, a, with superstars and, and well-established players, uh, veterans often, uh, but still, you know, the coach, uh, the coach has to uh, give them guidelines. Um, of course, they, you have um, you have to do that. And and Flick understood his role. Um, so I think, yeah, it was a, a mix of a couple of things. But um, I think what, what was the most impressive thing was that the turnaround or that the turn happened so quickly. He he, he didn't need more than two weeks or something to turn Bayern around. So that was impressive, you know, because many people expected him to need maybe couple of weeks maybe a few months maybe the, the winter training camp which you have in germany mm-hmm. um where you can do some stuff but he didn't do he didn't need that just turned around everything within two weeks for so long Bayern were kind of identifiable by their their, their wide forwards particularly the the kind of robin and ribbery era what is Bayern? how would you identify Bayern tactically now Obviously, Serge Nabry's come in and, and done fantastic well. Kingsley Coman as well. They've got good wingers. Is that still their kind of their calling card, or is or, or do they kind of play in a different style now? Do you think it's a bit differently? But I think there are a lot of similarities between the 2013 team that won the Champions League and mm-hmm. the 2020 team that won the Champions League. Um, yes, ring plays. Um, their wingers. That's the that's a calling card. Not only the attacking wingers, but also Alfonso Davis as their left back. Yeah. Um, who was tremendous last season, has been struggling a bit, a bit this season, but he's really young, so um, I mean, <laughs> we should give him a break. Um, so that's really their, their, like their focus lays still on wing plays and, you know, looking for these one-on-ones on the outside. Um, and also just, I think they have long spells of possession, but what you often see is they have the most success with vertical plays, um, also considering that Lewandowski is one of the best um, center forwards when it comes to you know um, securing the ball, playing layoff passes, um, playing with with your back to the goal. Um, he's someone who can do that better than almost anyone in the world right now. I think him and Karim Benzema, th- these are the two um, who, who can that better than than anyone. Um, and, and he's also a tremendous goal scorer. But you know him as a playmaking number nine, basically, um, he's also tremendous. And and they really use him very well. Um, and what I found interesting is that, like last season, Thiago was their main playmaker, the, the the passing player who tried to play through the through the um, defense lines, and he did that well. Um, and then he left for Liverpool, and and Joshua Kimmich took over his job. Different style, a little bit more long balls he plays mm. usually, um, but he still 
he grew into this role very quickly, very quickly. Um, so, and he's a bit more of a, uh, he, has, he has more defensive abilities, I think, than, than Thiago. Thiago is a competent defender. Uh, I think Kimmich is, is a better, let's say, defend, a pure defender. Mm-hmm. In terms of pure defending, Kimmich is a bit better. So he also brings that to the table. And with Goretzka, uh, you, you got your box-to-box midfielder, um, who, is, who is important for like basically the second wave. Because what you had in 2013 was you got Ravi Martinez as your deep-lying playmaker. And then you got Bastian Schweinsteiger as your box-to-box midfielder, as the kind of second wave, as I mentioned. You know, the guy who yeah. then shows up behind the center forward suddenly. And that's what Goretzka does right now. Um, so he's also uh, very important to just be, because you need people behind Lewandowski because Lewandowski plays these layoff passes, but he needs players behind him. Um, and Goretzka is also important when you know a Kingsley Coman goes through on the outside, then he needs someone to play into the backspace, maybe you know behind and to the to the um, penalty area line. So and there's Goretzka showing up. So that's that's also important. Uh, I think the things work quite quite well right now, and there, as I said, a lot of similarities to the 2013 mm. team. That's interesting. Moving on to RB Leipzig, they obviously progressed slightly more dramatic fashion. They had to get a result on the final match day, beating Manchester United three uh, two in Leipzig. They'd obviously lost five 0 at Old Trafford, somewhat inexplicably, um, and were beaten in Paris as well. We've seen two different sides to this Leipzig team in the group stages what is the which is the best reflection of their capabilities and are they a team that are able to go deep like they did last year reaching the latter stages yeah I think that the 5-0 at at Old Trafford was a turning point as I mentioned before uh, in terms of the uh, their risk taking uh, let's let's put it let's let's say risk taking wasn't was an issue because uh, at uh, at Old Trafford um, they played the back three, and they were very aggressive in build-up. That meant a lot of advanced and uh, advancing runs, uh, forward runs, forward passes, and kind of the style you can play, but you're still prone to uh, turning the ball over a lot. Mm. And I think what what Manchester United did quite well was they kind of lured um, Leipzig into these these pressing traps, meaning that they didn't attack them early. But when they, they, they um, sit sat deep to an extent, you know, around the halfway line, and and then lured uh, Opamecano and 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 Halstenberg, the, the defenders, to come forward, and then what they what Halstenberg and, and Upamecano and uh, I think Klosterman was uh, the third defender, they they moved forward, and then they were around the halfway line, um, and suddenly like the, the 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 field was really narrow before them. They didn't have these these openings. They didn't have open receivers they could play to. Um, and then they turned the ball over. And I mean, Man United, for all the faults and uh, for all the you know various failures they have had, still they can be somewhat somewhat good at um, at countering at counterattacking. Uh, and that's what they they did against Leipzig. And of course, I mean, once you're uh, three goals down or something, I think the um, you kind of kind of give up. Um, or they, what Leipzig LSD gave up. So I think that was the first. There was like something you saw early on the season until the Man United game. I think they also lost the next game against Gladbach, uh, but in different fashion. So um, and then they turned around and Nagelsmann changed some of the things. So they are they take less risk in build up. Um, they don't uh, step into these pressing traps a lot now. 
Um, they maybe don't generate as many shots as before because of that, uh, but they also are not as prone to turnovers. So yeah, it's kind of kind of an uh, basically an exchange there, uh, less risks and also maybe less uh, attacking uh, pot potency. But um, still, I mean, because of the individual quality they have. And because of different players they also have, because they have also like six, seven attacking players they can use for three or four positions, um, they are still a team that that can beat um, a lot of teams. And um, yeah, so I think that was the, the Man United match. The first one was um, a kind of a turning point and, and helped them. And I think, as I mentioned, I, I talked to Emil Forsberg. He also said like, sometimes such losses can help you actually in a season. Mm. Um, and Maybe it did, you know. In hindsight, maybe it was really the best thing that could happen, especially because it was so such an embarrassing, crushing defeat and not like a close match or anything. Yeah, well, they've certainly had the last laugh in Group H. Um, <laughs> and one particular one player that I have to ask you about, because I find him fascinating, is Angelino, who came back to Manchester City uh, at the start of last season, kind of got eviscerated I think for his performance against Manchester United and that was pretty much it he was cast out in January went to Leipzig and it's basically been a sensation I think it's fair to say for them ever since chips in with goals for fun uh, gets assists to gets gets up the field you know makes things happen gets in the penalty area a hell of a lot what what is it that Julian Nagelsmann has been able to do with him to get that kind of output out of him? Was it always within him and maybe Guardiola didn't use him in the right role, the right system, or has or Nagel's been, been able to take his game up a level in his in his time in Germany? I think there are two things to, to uh, Angelino's recent success. The first thing is that, um, as I mentioned, like that Leipzig liked to, uh, to uh, take a risk. Uh, I think he's one of the guys who has who enjoys more freedom and, and Nagelsmann gives him more freedom than maybe in another uh, wing back. Because he usually plays as a wing back. Um, sometimes when he plays with a back four, he plays as a left back or as a left winger. Uh, but he enjoys more freedom. He has like kind of a, a role where he doesn't have to track back all the time. Um, that's maybe one thing that helps him. Uh, I think early on, and when he played for Leipzig, a lot of people um, were kind of surprised by him, but also praised him for his performances. I was on the on the fence with him uh, for a while because he was very good. And up until the penalty area, basically, you know, he was mm. good at, at, at uh, breaking through, beating defenders. But then his last pass, the final pass, something like that, that was usually not the right thing he did. Like often enough, he, he just played these pointless cross passes into the into the box when there was only Timo Werner or something. And it's like, all right, the decision making wasn't that good, actually. But he was really impressive up until the penalty area. And I think what Nagelsmann did... Although, I mean, we don't have like any any scoops here, but I think what Nagelsmann did was really also training him in how to then keep a cool head once you're really close to the goal, once mm -hmm. you're close to the penalty area. What do you what do you have to do there? He told him or he taught him that, um, I believe, because now Angelino also not only has like the impressive numbers when he's in the middle third, but when he's entering the final third, now he also does the right things more often than not. So... And um, so I, I wasn't a fan uh, with him for a while, but now I'm yeah I'm I'm on the on the Angelino bandwagon. <laughs> um, I think he wasn't miscast in the past. Just what we have to accept is that that he's not a, let's say a traditional left back or something. Yeah. And in in a traditional more defensive left back role, he will never be uh, the most reliable player. 
uh, kind of like Araf Hakimi, for instance, who is now at Internationale. Before that, he was at Borussia Dortmund. Also someone um, can be really impressive in, in an attacking way. Um, but sometimes he is not as, as reliable as a defender and he's like all over the place, basically, uh, with, with his, his defending. And you can be the same. Um, and I don't know, maybe at, at Manchester City, they expected him to be more uh, more like a reliable, fundamental left back. Uh, but that's not what he is. Um, but it's interesting because Nagelsmann is kind of has now the reputation for uh, using some of these miscast. Uh, players or maybe even these these misfits basically um and turning them into into great players but we also see with with Nagelsmann players we have seen them at Hoffenheim as well with like Sebastian Rudi and and the likes um once they leave Nagelsmann or Nagelsmann leaves them or something uh they usually drop back and become uh, and, and turn back to what they were before so um yeah they they uh, somewhat rely on Nagelsmann so uh, if Nagelsmann ever leaves Leipzig which he will uh, at some point uh, maybe Angelino should just follow him. Yeah. <laughs> a word of warning there. Um, we touched yeah. on mentioning Gladbach right at the top, so I'm not going to not going to come back to them again. But just quickly on on Borussia Dortmund, obviously um, fantastic individual names that leap off the page at Erling Haaland, Jaden Sancho's, etc., and 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 plenty of others. A couple of youngsters though I wanted to touch upon. Um, Gio Reyna has obviously had a really impressive start to the season one and Yusuf Makoko who uh, only recently very recently in fact turned 16 and became eligible to play for the first team just talk to me a little bit about those guys how how good are they and how exciting is Dortmund's future maybe not in terms of this competition but with those guys and others as well we should say coming through in the long term can, can they be help Dortmund become a bit of a force going in, in the future, in the longer run, do you think? Yeah, of course. Um, Giorena, I think, um, might be... Uh, because, especially in, in the UK, of course, um, the, the rave is all about Jaden Sancho, right? And Erling yeah. Holland um, is also UK-born. Uh, but I think a lot of people rave about uh, Jaden Sancho for reasons. Right? Because he's, he's an English international. Um, of course, there's, there's more hype around him than maybe uh, behind others. Um, but I think... In terms of like his fundamentals and also his athletic abilities, I think Chiarena might have eventually the better career than than Jaden Sancho. Mm. Um, he is because Jaden Sancho sometimes he has troubles, you know, staying fit, um, being one hundred percent, being quick and dynamic enough. Um, and when he has troubles like that at twenty, um, then I don't know what will what will happen when he's twenty eight or so. Um, so he's so Jane Sancho with his performances a lot of up and down. You know, he can he can be world class three or four weeks, and then just recently, the past four weeks or so, he has been like invisible sometimes. Mm. Um, Giorena is kind of different, uh, is different uh, to Sancho in the way that he might not have like the the ability to be like world world class, like the the Mbappe Jane Sancho level uh, in in some matches, but he can be really really great in a lot of matches he has um i think what also works in his favors is uh americans compare him to like a young linebacker uh because of his like like how he looks um and his build um so he's he's crafty he's he has a he has a physical stature um and he can be he, he can't be bullied around and even at 17 he's not really bullied around and like let's let's grow him a little bit let, let's you know let him mature a little bit for another year Three or four years, and then he will be a, a real, a real force. Um, he's also an intelligent playmaker. 
Um, so that also helps him. So decision making is really, really good at a young age. Um, so that works in his favor. So I think maybe in, in terms of career success, Giorano might be might be on to have a better career than than Chayden Sancho. I mean, that's like speculation and all, but I think sometimes people have to look at these players uh, not only in terms of like highlights, but also in terms of um, consistency. And I think Giorena might might become the most consistent player um, Dortmund have had for a while because even Marco Royce, for instance, as good as he is, uh, is kind of inconsistent a lot. Yeah, he, like he can go from world class to, to Sunday league uh, in like a blink of an eye. Um, so yeah, also sometimes, and also that like the entire Dortmund team is like that in in, in mm. some ways. You know, yeah. they, they can be really, 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 really uh, tremendous in some matches, and then they turn around and lose to a relegation side and uh, have two shots uh, over the course of ninety minutes. So I think it helps them to have Chirena there. Um, Yusufa Mukuku is kind of the same because I mean there is a lot of hype behind him because he's sixteen and he scored. Uh, 144 goals on the youth level within three years. So I think 144 goals in 88 matches. Um, so you believe, all right, there's there's something going on there. Um, and he played for the under-16 national team when he was 12. So, all right, um, good. Uh, that's, that's kind of the numbers you need to know. Um, but I think um, as opposed to maybe other wunderkinds, uh, wunderkinder basically, uh, like, like Freddie Adu and others, I think, what uh, works in favor, works in his favor, is that uh, Mukuku is a really hard worker, like, very determined, and no, like a no bullshit kind of player. Um, and also, he might not have like this one skill where you think like, all right, he's a world class one on one player, he's a world class tripler, he's a world class and a shooter or something. But he's really good at most things. So. He's not he's not extraordinarily fast or something, but mm. he's like he's very good in a lot of things already at 16. And and similar to Chiorena, that can be the right um, recipe for a long successful career. Um, so yeah, that I think that that works really in his in, a, in his favor. So he's and also one thing that uh, coaches praise uh, when you talk to them about Mukuku is that they say he makes decisions so fast that like it's incredible especially at his age so they really praise him for quick decisions um and just just thinking quicker than others um and that's that's also something like even if you age and maybe become slower and everything like quick decision making is still there now it's like like an american football the aging quarterback like yeah but he's still he still see, reads the game the way he he read the game when he was 23 or something yeah. and i think with mukuku can be the same you know even if it gets slower over time can still read the game and maybe become a number ten as, as opposed. And now he's now he's more of a center forward, so he can maybe move into a new role. So that also works in his favor. So high high ceiling there. But of course, we shouldn't hype him too much because he's sixteen. You know, it's like always tricky with these kind of things. Well, that's it. We've seen plenty of players, and the name that immediately springs to mind in this instance is Freddie Adu, <laughs> hyped up beyond all belief as a teenager, and you know, not deliver on that potential. But he's, he certainly seems to be at the right club to make good on his potential. We'll take a very short break and then we'll be back for part two to discuss Union Berlin and their impressive starts to the new Bundesliga season. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back 
to Laptop Gurus. This week we're joined by Constantine Egner, freelance football journalist, and we are talking about some Bundesliga issues. We just, in fact, talked about the Champions League, actually. But in part two, we're going to talk about the Bundesliga and we're going to talk specifically about Union Berlin. Uh, they're promoted to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history in 2019 and finished in a respectable 11th place. This season, they're looking to go one better and do find themselves just outside the European places at the time of recording. They've certainly been one of the stories of the early months of this Bundesliga season. Constantin, what do you what can you tell us about their background firstly? It's not very statsy and, and datary, but I think it's worth talking a little bit about kind of how they compare to their other Bundesliga rivals and, and of course the fact that they are they hail from Berlin like Hertha, who are far bigger club um historically. What what's their kind of pedigree like up to this point in their history? Yeah, so historically, um, to to maybe paint a, a bigger picture here is um, that that Union Berlin, they are more of the working class club in Berlin. You know, they are also from East Berlin. I mean, people know that Berlin was separated for over four decades um, and for more or less uh, three decades uh, by the Berlin Wall. And and Union Berlin is one of the the East Berlin clubs. wasn't really a big club in in Eastern and in the GDR. You know, German Democratic. Democratic Republic under the socialist regime. They uh, even weren't that big of a club for the first 15 years or so after the reunification of Germany. Um, Hertha is like completely different. You know, Hertha is the, 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 the stadium they play in is in Charlottenburg, which is the kind of the the, uh, the place in Berlin where the where the mansions are and where the, where the rich people live. <laughs> now, although, I mean, Hertha is not like a rich people club, but it's more of a, you know, uh, middle, middle class club. And Union Berlin, their stadium is in in Köpenick, which is a true blue color, uh, blue color um, kind of area in Berlin. You know, a lot of people working in factories, and um, and you still when you when you go when you walk through uh, the area there, you still see like the shutdown factories from the old from the old times. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where they are, and they for a long time had this kind of working class mentality, underdog mentality. Um, didn't have the resources. Um, were established, well established in the second Bundesliga for a while, um, but no one really saw them as someone as, as a club that could uh, go up to the Bundesliga and survive there. I mean, you you still have like, especially in German football, you usually have like one or two clubs, one or two underdog clubs, usually in a, in a season that play Bundesliga, but usually only for one year, like Paderborn last year, and and you know Fürth, Braunschweig. There are always like one or two teams. Kind of from the, with this underdog status, um, but no one really expected expected Union Berlin to do that well. And it's still, like, I mean, they don't have really large uh, financial resources. Still, I mean, they have to be very smart on the transfer market, and I think they have have been. What I find interesting about their recent success is this: last year they played kind of this underdog football. Also, you know, long balls. They had Sebastian Andersen, who is their center forward, who I think had the best and aerial numbers you can find uh in out of any attacking player you know as a, as a center forward you won the vast majority of his aerial duels so you think uh, that's possible actually uh, usually it's not but with Anderson was they played a lot of long balls they tried to bridge the midfield uh, as quickly as possible didn't really play the football uh you know the, of the likes of Gladbach or Dortmund uh but very this this underdog kind of style um, sitting deep and playing long balls, and and they were fairly successful. I mean, they finished eleventh. Um, so that that was 
success, but it was the first year and you've seen a lot of uh, underdog clubs in the Bundesliga. Good first year and then everything broke down in the second year. So, and they lost Andersen during the summer and many people thought like, all right, they are doomed. You know, they lost their key player, their target player up front. It's just, it's, it's, that's it basically. Um, but it's not. Um, and I think for two reasons, they signed Max Kruse. It's not, it was not a direct replacement. Because Max Kruse is more of a false nine type of player or number 10, number nine hybrid. But what he also did, and I think more importantly than having Max Kruse, is Urs Fischer, the, the Swiss coach um, at, at Union, he changed everything basically. Now they have long spells of possession, crown passes, they have a kind of these, these long pass sequences that lead to goals. They had like one, I, I, I've used the, uh, that, that sequence in a couple of articles now. They had like a a sequence against Arminia Bielefeld. They beat Arminia Bielefeld 5 0. They had a one sequence leading to the third goal where they had 20 play or 20 different um, points where the, uh, 20 passes were played before the goal was scored, basically, you know. And everyone was involved from the left back to the right ringer um, to the center backs. Everyone was involved. And like that's that would have been unthinkable last season because they would just play the long ball and try something, uh, you know, down the field and and try to maybe pick up a loose ball or something. So, but that's not what they do right now. They try to have possession. They try to regain the ball as quickly as possible. They don't sit deep. Um, their possession numbers are still not like outrageous or something. They still have like 48% uh, um, or something on average. Um, but it also comes down to a couple of matches where they were just overpowered. Um, but I think they... they Really, they have also two thing, two key factors that helps them a lot now. Ball security is one thing. Uh, with Robin Knoche, for instance, uh, and uh, the center back Robert Andrich, the center midfielder, and of course Max Kruse, who's like who's now your your target player up front, but he's someone who needs the who needs a crown pass because he's he's not good in the air. Just to put it to put it that way. Um, and also, what they are in terms of, uh, statistically, they are first in the Bundesliga in uh, winning duels over free balls. So kind of picking up loose balls is kind of their forte. And that's interesting because that that's now connects last season where they were great in this department to this season where they try to have a different kind, a different uh, possession style, but they are still good at just picking up loose balls, you know, kind of regaining possession and then starting a new spell of possession. So um, I think the couple of things work together, but I've, Still, I think there's just their philosophy is different uh, this year, and yeah, uh, you have to praise the coach for that because he could have just stuck to what worked last season, uh, but he knew that like the second year for underdog club like Union will be will be hard, um, and we should and basically decided we should try out something differently. You know, we should we should try out something uh, that might work and it might put us ahead of a couple of clubs because what what you see in the Bundesliga is you got a couple of relegation sides that are really passive destructive um and sometimes it, it works for you uh, as a as a competitor against these relegation sides to just do things completely differently and that worked for augsburg a couple of years ago and it worked for mines a couple of years ago and now it works for union berlin um and that's interesting uh, from, from a more philosophical point of view You've answered a couple of my subsequent questions I was going to ask you there with that, uh, which is no bad thing. But I was going to come on to Max Cruiser. He's an interesting character, interesting player. Obviously scored um, scored goals pretty much wherever he's been for St. Pauli, uh, Gladbach, Freiburg, Wolfsburg, uh, Werder. They had a very good spell there. 
was at Fenerbahce previous prior to this season has come back uh, to the Bundesliga to join Union and and seems to have really fitted in there. What can you what can you tell us about him and and his kind of role within this uh, Union team? Yeah, so he's one of the more underappreciated footballers in Germany, and there are reasons for that. He you know he was ousted from the national team at some point in his career. He had to, he more or less had to leave various clubs because of uh, just uh, his his off the pitch behavior in a way. You know, he's, he's someone who who likes to go to bars, he, who likes to poker, who likes to um, do all these kind of things professionals are not supposed to do. Uh, but also, it's like kind of his identity, right? He's a, he goes against the crane. Um, he doesn't a, a, adapt to things. He is uh, he's more of a more of a free thinker. And I think on the pitch, it's it's kind of the same. He's as I said, one of the really better number number nine, number ten hybrids, false number nines, whatever you want to call it. And even at thirty two, that also is one issue he had in, in in the past was that sometimes he didn't stay fit. He, he gained weight um in off season and so yeah i mean coaches were not always happy with him they knew what he can technically he's he's tremendous um he's also he understands the game very well but um there were all these kind of there was all this noise you know um and sometimes coaches just hate that um so that was also a kind of an issue that was one issue he why he went to turkey because he was in talks with other clubs in germany but they all didn't want to sign him, didn't want to pay his, his the money he demanded um, and and didn't trust him that he would be reliable over the course of the entire season. Then he went to Turkey that also things didn't go well there. And just Union Berlin were like, all right, we just give it a try. Um, what do we have to lose? Um, maybe something that works in, in, in favor, in, in like Union's favor now is that like all the bars in Berlin here are shut down. Um, so... Because I'm 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 in Berlin. I'm living right here where all the bars are, all the all the hip, you know, bars for young people. And I I actually expected Kuse to show to show up here uh, regularly um, on Friday nights, Sunday night, uh, Saturday nights. But uh, no, they are all shut down right now because of the pandemic. Um, maybe you know next summer things will be different, and I will see Max Kuse. Um, and he's not the only Bundesliga player that shows up a lot here. You know, there are us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, also, also, also non non Berlin based players, by the way, a um, couple of them. Yeah, in their off time, they they like to go to Berlin and party here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I was like expecting uh, you know to to cruise uh, go to go all out uh, in in the party scene in Berlin. But no, uh, there was a pandemic. Or there is a pandemic, so um, he has to stay quiet more or less. Um, but yeah, I, I think they just g- gave it a try, and and it works. It works out. Now he's injured, um, but that's you know that wasn't like his fault. Um, so still um, a good signing. And I have been listening to a couple of podcasts and interviews with people from other clubs, Frankfurt, Schalke, and so on, and Werder Bremen, where he played before. And they were like, "Why didn't we sign Max Kruse?" By the way, you know, they were like, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they talked about it like that. Why why didn't we sign him? Like um, because. He isn't on a huge contract anymore because he's on a contract that Union Berlin can afford and they don't pay four or five millions a year to a player because they, they are just not able to do that. So other clubs are like, why, why didn't we sign him and have him on a decent contract, but not on a high paying contract at, at 32? And uh, well, they didn't sign him. Union did. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see if his form continues when uh, when Berlin opens back up and, and life begins to return to normality. I, I certainly hope it does. Uh, Union, 
Bundesliga's second highest scorers at the time of recording. Um, seven of those goals have come from set pieces. And I was going to tie this in with my next question as well, which is I've noticed the form of uh, fullback Christopher Trimmel, a bit of an assist machine. He's got 12 since promotion, according to our numbers, created 80 chances, 13 big chances. Is that, you mentioned the underdog football, is that a direct consequence of that, that they've put an emphasis on set pieces? And, and is that something that's changing um, this this season? Or are they still, I suppose the numbers I've said there kind of bear out that they are still very dangerous from set pieces. But um, is it a coincidence that they are as dangerous from set pieces as they are when you when you talk about the underdog football? Yeah, I mean, Trimmel was also involved in a lot of uh, Anderson goals last season. So uh, kind of what, what often happened was uh, they played the long ball to Anderson. He, you know, won the aerial then uh, and then the ball got to Trimmel and then he played the cross pass to Anderson again. So I think and because Anderson was so great in the air and Trimmel's cross passes were also kind of usually accurate or more or less accurate so that, that Anderson could could convert him and can use him to score goals. So there was also, he was a factor in that um particular case uh, with the Anderson goals um because he's there he's their go-to fullback winger type of type of guy um and he's much more established and on the, on the left side they use lens for instance but also other players so I'm Trimmel is is uh, kind of the established winger or uh, winger slash fullback you know um that's one thing yes uh, now this season as I as I said things are a bit differently um he's not the the cross passing machine I believe but uh, he he plays also the set pieces and yeah and they they've put an emphasis on set pieces they've been um, putting an emphasis on set pieces for a while now even in the second Bundesliga they were uh, playing a lot of or using a lot of set pieces uh, to their advantage um, just I think something that has to be has to do something with an underdog mentality but also with uh, kind of the players they have um, not only Andersen but also other players that their center midfielders are very physical um, so I think. You, you need the tactical training to be good at set pieces, but you also need the players that can win, the, uh, they can go up in the air and they can win these these one-on-ones uh, that can beat defenders. Um, and I think that's what also works in their favor is that they have like right now, um, even with Anderson being out um, or being, being gone to Cologne, um, still they have four or five players that are really dangerous and, and can score from set pieces. Um, so yeah, that works also in our favor. I, I don't know if that's planned because I don't think I don't think that's the first thing you look at when you sign a, a new guy. Uh, if he can score from set pieces, I don't believe that's that's what happens. Uh, but you know, it's it's still good that you have competent um, uh, center backs and center midfielders or that are competent at uh, you know in, in these set piece situations. So yeah, the, kind of a mix of of a lot of things. Um, and I think it has to do something with, with being the underdog because you know that you still, even if you have like 25 or 30 percent ball possession in the game, you still know that you get a couple of free kicks and corner kicks usually. And why not score, you know, from there um, and uh, beat a better team and you know just not not steal the steal the free points, but you know a little bit like that. It feels like <laughs> that sometimes, right? Yeah. Just, just steal the free points, you know, pack the free points, and just go home. <laughs> no, absolutely right, absolutely right. It's evidently working. We're gonna take a short break, and then we'll be back for the final part of this week's show when we're talking about, well, I guess a, a massive club doing the absolute opposite of what people might have expected them in in FC Schalke. So we'll be back very shortly. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Laptop Gurus. This week we're joined by Konstantin Ekner, football freelance journalist and a Bundesliga follower. 
and we are talking about Germany's top flight. We've focused so far on good news stories, the, the four German clubs progressing in the Champions League through to the knockout stages and the rise of Union Berlin, who are upsetting the odds in the Bundesliga this season. We're now going to move on to someone, a team at the wrong end of the table, and a huge name ultimately, uh, and that is FC Schalke. In 2018, they had... 155,000 members, making them Germany's second largest sports club. They've won seven Bundesliga titles and they were the first German double winners in 1937. Crucially, they've never been relegated from the Bundesliga, but as we saw with Hamburg, that can be quite literally a ticking clock. Today, they sit bottom of the Bundesliga. I think that's unlikely to age or change before this show goes out. They are winless in 2020-21. And they haven't, in fact, won a league match since January. Constantine, this is obviously a massive football club that we're talking about for those reasons that I've listed above and, and many, many more. How dramatic is this fall from grace for a club of Schalke's ilk? I mean, it, it is kind of one of the one of the big tragedies um, of, of German football right now. Um, as you mentioned, like second biggest membership base, uh, one of the kind of the, the pillars of West Western German football. Um because you got you got the 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 Ruhrgebiet, which is the the, the coal area and you know the, the coal and mining area uh, of Germany. Of course a lot of these these coal mines have shut have been shut down over the past 20 years and so so the the, the area where Schalke and Dortmund are located that the area is in a transitional phase right now. You know people have to go for you know have to look for other jobs because the, the, as I said the coal mines are shutting down the the the, the steel mills are shutting down um, you know so, something I think people who you know who live in Manchester or something maybe they they can really feel uh, and have, have have made the same experience maybe or a similar experience uh, to people that that live in that area so there's also kind of this identity thing that Schalke and Dortmund of course but Schalke is is kind of their club. Um, and other clubs in the region have also gone down, like Rotweiss, uh, like, like Rotweiss Essen. So, and now Schalke is also um, on the verge of being relegated. Maybe I mean we, we're not sure, but but right now they are uh, they have a, a winless spell of uh, what is it like twenty five matches or so. So they are you know they are close to uh, breaking the the record of uh, Tasmania Berlin uh, Berlin in the seventies. They had I think thirty one winless matches in the Bundesliga. So yeah. Um, it, it, will, it will be interesting uh, if Schalke can break the record, uh, a negative one. So I think there are a couple of, of um, aspects to this to this downfall of Schalke. A lot of things have to do with the, with the management, with the board. Uh, there has been trouble with the board and the management for many, many years. They have many people came and, got, came and went um, over the course of like 10 years or so. New coaches, new sporting directors, new hats of whatever you know like it's like every department they had like a new hat at some point and another one and another one got sacked and so on and so on so they, there's that's trouble and that means trouble they have amounted huge debt uh we talk about over 200 million euros um and that's that's a lot especially for a german club you know be, with with no really big investor who can just uh, balance um, this this debt and make a huge payment or something. That's not what's what's going on in German football usually. As with Schalke, they don't have like a like a big potent investor. Um, so then last summer, this summer, 
they had to sell had, had to sell a couple of players had to let go players they couldn't make any big signings the the sporting director Jochen Schneider ta- uh, talked to fans and, and told them basically guys we have to you know we have to survive the next season we have to um, in Germany they say like they have to uh, in Gürtel Engerschnell we have to you know tighten the belt um, for a while um, because we don't have the money to to sign anyone we we have to they they had to let go West McKenney one of their young stars on a loan deal to Juventus for like 6 million because they needed the 6 million. All right. And, and uh, so th- kind of that's where they are right now uh, in terms of like the management and uh, transfer market activities. So yeah, now they, they are in trouble uh, on, on the field because they had to sack um, or they thought they had to sack uh, Wagner, David Wagner, the former Huddersfield coach, uh, because he didn't do well last season, um, second part of last season. Um, then they, they lost again early on the season, uh, but they are not able to create any chances in, in many matches. They, they can't you know, put any intensity on their opponents. So often enough, they, they just look like victims. Uh, we're just waiting to concede a couple of goals and go home defeated once again. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, kind of uh, what's, what's going on at Schalke. Um, and I think one thing that might still work in their favor is um, there are other teams that have been in their situation in recent years in the Bundesliga, just you know being last, not really looking like they can beat anyone. I think with Schalke, they still have a number, like six, seven players who are national players who are, who might be considered you know high level tier one players, like Suat Serda, for instance, who has been injured for a while. Uh, but these players, they can still make a difference, and they can still be um, part of a of a better team, uh, and maybe you know elevate Schalke at least to like the 15th or something or 14th, which will save them from relegation. So um, there's still something like that. They still have the individual quality to turn things around, I believe, because other teams that were in their situation they just didn't have the players to do that. As I said, Schalke had to uh, let go a couple of players, but they still have like a core of uh, decent to good players. So there's still like the hope that maybe they can turn things around because of this quality. Uh, but also what what uh, might hurt them is there because of Corona, the, the schedule in Germany has been or has had to be tightened up. Uh, so there's no winter break, basically. The last match is on 22nd of December and the next one will be on 2nd of January. Usually what you have in Germany is like the last match will be you know, shortly before Christmas and then you have three weeks, uh, three weeks break where you can, can do a training camp or something. You, you can go to, to Spain or to Turkey and in warmer areas and, and uh, in warmer regions and just have a training camp there and maybe you know, start, start from scratch again, do some, uh, do some things, tactical uh, training sessions and stuff like that, but not this time. So Basically, it's, it's one long season, like like you know the Premier League. But in Germany, usually you can you can reset at some point in in January, not this time, and that might hurt them because they, they would need uh, a winter training camp just to you know, to regather, regroup as a team, and also maybe for Manuel Baum as the coach uh, to work things out uh, or to find time to talk to his players and and make some some kind of. Uh, yeah, d- damage analysis basically, and and try to find ways to to turn things around, but not not this year. So, yeah, not 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 looking good for them. But as I said, like not all hope is lost. Sounds like good news is in short supply, though. Um, looking at the the David Wagner reign, um, they were they they were as high as fourth for a couple of weeks there last season. 
um, at the start of December. And, and we shouldn't kind of oversimplify it and say that Schalke kind of slipped away completely after the restart um, due to due to COVID-19. They, they were stuttering and stumbling a little bit in the new year, weren't they? And after losing just three in their first kind of half of the season, um, that they only won once um, from from January on, wasn't that? Of course, is the the last win that we refer to. What what went wrong for them to go so you know so spectacularly? And ultimately, really, it was their 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 first half of the season form that probably kept them clear of the rele- relegation battle in the end as as they finished twelfth. Yeah, so there, there was a story of um, basically revolving around uh, their defensive abilities, and there was also they had one surprisingly good season under Domenico Tedesco before that, uh, where they finished second in the Bundesliga. And also, what was the main reason? They were defensively sound and pretty pretty good at countering and counterattacking. Um, and that was the same under David Wagner. Um, not not to the extent that uh, they were beating every, everyone, which they were. I mean, under the Desco, they had like times when they were looking almost unbeatable and and really dangerous because you 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 always had to fear that Schalke will uh, catch you on the break and uh, score a couple of goals. So yeah, um, that worked for a while, but um, especially in the Bundesliga, usually that doesn't lead you to long-term success being a really defensive side, uh, at least not to the success you need as a, as a club like Schalke, um, because especially counter-pressing, you know, after turnovers, uh, regaining possession, a lot of people, a lot of teams are good at counter-pressing um, and they figured Schalke out after a while. Um, so Schalke had good six months under uh, Wagner last season, uh, but then things went downhill again. Just like they did under Tedesco, because Tedesco had a first, a decent first year or a good first year, finishing second, and then the, the second year was like horrendous at times. So um, I was same with Wagner, but within one season. Um, so yeah, su- sustainable success with that kind of style they had with this defensive style um, is is hard. It's hard to achieve um, sustainable success. Um, what they often did was they they, they regained possession deep in their own third, uh, and then played uh, one of these long lateral, uh, long long vertical passes um, to you know either Guido Burgstaller or um, Benito Raman, for instance, one of their center forwards. Um, so and and they they made something happen. You know they they beat one defender. And then they they were uh, there for for more or less an uh, unopposed shot. But um, as I said, like that works for a while. That can work. Wasn't really attractive football, also. Um, but at some point, nope, not working anymore because teams figure figure you out um, and they know what to do once you regain possession. Either they counter press you right right away, or they they just track back and uh, and cover the right. Uh, players like like Rahman because Rahman had like a, a tremendous first half of last season when second half he was more or less invincible because like defenders knew exactly what Schalke tried to do with him uh, and they just you know th- just um, you know two guys marked him or something like that or they just bullied him a little bit um, t- to not let him into the penalty area um, and it was yeah they, you can you can work things out against Schalke and that's what they did then the summer happened as I said. Players had to go. Just the, the entire atmosphere dropped. Um, it got worse, and um, now they are 
they not really they can't really create much. I think they have the second lowest passes in the final third, third lowest forward passes. Um, so yeah, I think they have the least turnovers of all uh, clubs also. So yeah, so sounds like the numbers you have when you are battling relegation or going down at the end of the season. Yeah, it certainly does. You mentioned the kind of outgoings there, and there were obviously a significant departures. You say Weston McKenney going to Juventus, Alexander Nubel moved on, albeit he was kind of in and out of the team by the end of the season. Um, but that team on paper doesn't look appalling, in my view, which, as you said as well, today this goes. This evidently goes beyond kind of personnel is therefore what I'm driving at. What what has gone wrong this season on the field? What, why have they been unable to arrest that kind of slump in form that started in in the, the, the start of this year after the winter break? Yeah, I mean, as I said, like there, there are technical reasons um, and uh, I think the technical reasons also hurt some of uh, some players. Um, also, David Wagner, he had like, how do I put it? Like, like he had only like two calling calls, more or less, you know, in terms of, of his tactical approach. Um, and some of the players didn't fit his tactical approach, like Bentaleb, for instance, who came in then this uh, in the summer again, who, who came back to Schalke the summer. He, he didn't really fit his tactical approach, um, uh, but he had to play like as a, as a number eight, more or less at times. And, and like he didn't know what to do or he didn't, his, his skill set didn't fit the position. So that also hurt them. Um, yeah, what else? I mean, also like right now, um, when, when it comes to center forwards, they don't really have one who's competent. Um, they, they signed Ibizovic on a, on a really, on a, on a, on a cheap contract because Ibizovic was is basically on his last year, but they fired him for, um, for stuff that happened. Um, then they signed Pacienza, who was the, the backup uh, striker for Eintracht Frankfurt. He's now injured. Um, Burgstaller's out, he's, he's gone. So, yeah, that's like, especially in, in the attacking department, there's not much left. Um, and also, some of these players have been through up and downs, uh, like Harit, but even when, when, it, when things went well, he, he went through a lot of up and downs. Um, and same for Suat Zerda, in my opinion. He is, a, I mean, he was selected by the German national coach for a couple of matches. Uh, but then he got injured, and also that's that's also stuff that, that, that of course doesn't help you. Um, so yeah, that's like a mix of a lot of things. And uh, as I said, like they still have a core um, that might help them to get to 15th or something. But I, they have to hurry up a little bit because they they lose points left and right, and other teams score a couple of points. Even the even the uh, in the bad teams of the league uh, have figured out how to score points. Um, and Schalke, they haven't really. Um, they had a few, they had three draws, I believe, uh, right at this point of, as a recording. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of a mix of a lot of things. And uh, I think also someone asked me this uh, yesterday, and um, about like how can you connect like what's what went wrong off the field with what went wrong on the field? And I think it's hard really because like that's you know it's like kind of uh, amateur psychology now, um, but. Sometimes, I mean, like if, if you're a player at Schalke and you see like see people like Weston McKenney, Daniel Caligiuri was, uh, I think, um, like deputy captain, people like them leaving, it doesn't give you as a player a lot of hope for the future. 
And it, it maybe creates the mindset of like, all right, I will be here one more year, but things are going downhill very fast at this place. So maybe I should ask my agent to look for our um, destinations. So um, also it doesn't help you really, right? Um, and then like pay cuts, um, no fans, because fans are also a big important part of Schalke, I believe, of the stadium um, and home matches where they, they use, even, even in like, Underwhelming seasons, they often were pretty strong in, in at home games because they had like sixty thousand people behind them, and it's a crazy stadium. It's like it's a, it's a stadium with a roof, so well, there's this. Uh, it's, it's different maybe than other arenas. Um, so yeah, that helped them. But uh, right now there are no fans, and as I said, like a lot of financial troubles. Um, so there's just like a lot of pieces also connecting with each other off the field, on the field stuff, um, and then like. Wagner was fired. Next coach co comes in. The, I, I I counted at some point. It's like the fifteenth coach in like the last ten years or something. But it's not it's not nothing nothing against him. So it's just um, that he that he might be uh, a coach for a, a different team than Schalke with the issues Schalke have on the field. Well, our thanks to Constantine for joining us on this edition of Laptop Gurus. Make sure you're following him on Twitter. It's at CC underscore Eckner, E-C-K-N-E-R. And whilst you're at it, make sure you're following 23 as well. It's at 20, the word, three, the number, sport, to find out more about the content toolbox and the services that we offer. Finally, subscribe to Laptop Gurus so that you never miss an episode of the show. And you can do that via Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. In the meantime, have a great end of the year and we look forward to speaking to you again in 2021.